Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. And welcome to the City Club of Cleveland and the 2018 Gala Luncheon of the Asian American Bar Association of Ohio. I'm Barbara Lum, the immediate past president of the Asian American Bar Association of Ohio and a member of the Board of Governors of the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. I am pleased to introduce today's speaker, Mr. Dale Minami, a friend of the Asian American Bar Association of Ohio and Napaba and a partner at Minami Tamaki LLP in San Francisco. It can be argued that fear of the other has become somewhat of a hallmark of American life today. Nearly every day we hear political leaders, pundits, and voters alternately express fear and concern about Muslims, young African American men, refugees from Syria, immigrants from Mexico, transgendered individuals, all groups who are identified as somehow threatening to the American way of life. Sadly, this is not a new conversation. After the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, authorizing the Secretary of War to place Americans of Japanese descent in internment camps. What followed was the imprisonment of nearly 120,000 Japanese Americans, 62% of whom were American citizens. One of those individuals was Fred Korematsu, an American born in the US to Japanese parents. He became a fugitive until he was arrested by military police, placed in an internment camp, and given uh, five years probation. With the help of the ACLU, he would eventually take his case Korematsu versus United States all the way to the Supreme Court, where he lost in a 6-3 decision which claimed his internment was justified during circumstances of emergency and peril. In November 2016, the City Club welcomed Karen Korematsu, his daughter, to share her perspective on her father's experience within America's complicated history of civil rights and wrongs. Today, we'll hear from the individual who led the charge to overturn Mr. Korematsu's conviction. Dale Manami was born in Los Angeles to parents who had been imprisoned at the Rohr concentration camp in Arkansas during World War II. In the early 1980s, at the urging of researchers who had uncovered possible governmental misconduct during Korematsu versus United States, Dale Manami assembled a pro bono legal team in an attempt to overturn the 40-year-old conviction of Fred Korematsu. His strategy included the use of the obscure legal process called the writ of error quorum nobis, through which individuals who have been convicted and serve their sentences can reopen their case. It was successful 
On November, 2000, November 10th, 1983, a federal judge overturned Fred Korematsu's conviction in the same San Francisco courtroom where he had been convicted in 1944. Since that time, Dale has been involved in significant litigation affecting the civil rights of Asian, American, uh, Asian Pacific Americans. These cases have included United Filipinos in for American uh, United Filipinos for affirmative action, excuse me, versus California Blue Shield, the first class action employment lawsuit brought by Asian Pacific Americans on behalf of Asian Pacific Americans, Spokane JCA, JACL versus Washington State University, a class action on behalf of Asian Pacific Americans to establish an Asian American Studies program at the Washington State University, and Nakanishi versus UCLA, a claim for unfair denial of tenure, which resulted in the granting of tenure after widespread publicity over discrimination in academia. Dale was also a co-founder of the Asian Law Caucus, the first community interest firm serving Asian Pacific Americans in the country. He also serves as a co-founder of the Asian American Bar Association of the Greater Bay Area, the Asian Pacific Bar of California, and the Coalition of Asian Pacific Americans, one of the nation's first political action committees focused on Asian American candidates and issues. Dale received a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from the University of Southern California and graduated magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. He received his JD from Bolt Hall School of Law at the University of California Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland and of the Asian American Bar Association of Ohio, please join me in welcoming Mr. Dale Manami. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, nice to be here in Cleveland. I was telling Barbara this is only my second time I've passed through before, but. I made a mistake of trying, leaving too early, and I should have stayed around to see Cleveland win the series uh, so they could play the Warriors and have a wonderful series uh, for the fourth straight year. I'd like to thank the City Club for hosting this. I'd like to thank uh, the Cleveland Association of Phi Beta Kappa, as well as for sponsoring, and especially the Asian American Bar Association of Ohio, and Barbara Lum, who took the lead in inviting me out here today. Our story starts on December 7th, 1941, where the Imperial forces of Japan attacked the United States suddenly and deliberately at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. The president calls it a day of infamy and issues Executive Order 9066, an order that allows a military commander to secure the West Coast states. His order is supported by Congress and the military orders that are issued by General, Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt exclude 120,000 Americans of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. General DeWitt is an avowed racist. His statements publicly are a Jap is a Jap. It makes no difference whether he is an American citizen or not. I do not want any of them. They are a dangerous element, whether loyal or not. They are an enemy race. And with that order begins years of infamy for Japanese Americans as stated before, 120,000, two-thirds of whom were American citizens, the old, the young, the infirm, my then one-year-old brother, my entire family, 
were taken to horse stalls to live and sleep on manure stained heat, I mean uh, uh, hay, then taken to uh, internment camps or incarceration in Roar, Arkansas. There were 10 such camps around the United States. They were essentially sentenced to uh, indefinite confinement. What's critical is they had no due process rights. There was no notice of any hearing. There was no notice uh, of charges. They were not allowed a trial. They were not allowed to have attorneys in complete derogation of their due process rights. Essentially, they were exiled, and their crime was racial ancestry. The justification was military necessity that Japanese Americans constituted a danger to this uh, war effort during World War II. It's interesting to note, too, that uh, no Japanese American was ever arrested or convicted of espionage or sabotage, although that was alleged later in the Supreme Court, which was a complete lie. And it's also interesting to note that the Japanese in Hawaii, the site of the Pearl Harbor attack, the site of the Pacific Naval Fleet, and the largest concentration and number of Japanese Americans in the country were never taken away en masse. So this was, it was not an aberration. And I think it's important to note that since Asian Americans uh, or Asians started coming here in the 1800s, they faced a, a river of discrimination they could not own land. They could not have certain occupations. They were in segregated schools. Uh, they couldn't marry Caucasians. Uh, they could not become naturalized citizens. Uh, eventually, the first immigration bans passed against an ethnic group was passed against the Chinese uh, in, 19, in 1882, the infamous Chinese Exclusion Act. That act was followed by a succession of other exclusion acts aimed at Asians, including Japanese Americans. As war clouds gathered over Europe and Asia during the 30s, uh, that river of racism overwhelmed this country, uh, after, especially after Pearl Harbor. And, but three men stood up to challenge those exclusion orders uh, and curfew orders. One was Gordon Hirabayashi a Quaker, a student at the University of Washington, a citizen who thought that giving up uh, to these orders and obeying them would cede or give up his rights to American citizenship. He was convicted of exclusion curfew violations uh, and eventually sent to uh, prison. Interesting side note, Gordon was also, as a Quaker, opposed to fighting, so he was convicted of uh, selective service violations. So they sentenced him to uh, prison in Arizona, but from Washington, uh, the court said, well, we don't have a way to get you down there, Mr. Hirabayashi. Can you find your own way? Gordon, <laughs> being a loyal American, said, oh, sure, I can. And he hitchhiked all the way to Arizona. And by the time he got to the prison, they said, well, we don't have the paperwork, so can you go into town and watch a movie or something? And you know, come back in a few hours, and we'll see if we can imprison you. Gordon went to watch a movie, came back two hours, they found the paper. He spent a long time in prison after that. Minoru Yasui was a young lawyer in Portland, Oregon. He knew the Constitution, he knew his rights. He deliberately violated the curfew. He was arrested, he was convicted, he spent a year in solitary confinement in Oregon. Fred Korematsu was a welder. Uh, Fred Korematsu was in love. He did not want to leave his Caucasian girlfriend 
So he tried to hide. He had some minor plastic surgery, changed his driver's license, very poorly, by the way, and uh, was arrested. He was convicted. He went to the horse stalls at Tan Fran and eventually sent to the incarceration camp at Topaz, Utah. One woman deserves mention, too. Her name is Mitsui Endo. She didn't challenge the original orders, but did challenge her confinement. And her case comes up to be a landmark case later on, immediately after the Korematsu case. She showed the same type of courage as these men and deserves the same kind of recognition, I think. All of these cases went to the United States Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court manipulated the cases to separate Korematsu which alleged a greater deprivation of, depri uh, of de uh, detention and exclusion than the Hirabayashi and Yasui cases, which alleged only exclusion and curfew. The court sent uh, Korematsu back down to be heard again. Hirabayashi came up. In a landmark case that almost every law student reads, uh, nine, nine justices unanimously, six of the nine, by the way, were appointed by President Roosevelt, the very order these uh, that were being challenged at the time. Uh, and they challenged the curfew and the exclusion. But the courts faced a dilemma. The dilemma was there was no evidence at all in the record that Japanese Americans were dangerous. There was no act of espionage or sabotage, like I mentioned. There was no expert witness or any kind of witnesses at the trial to, uh, to testify about the fact that a military necessity uh, impelled these decisions to exclude an entire ethnic group. So the government had to con concoct, had to manufacture an argument. And the argument was patently racist because it fastened on the ethnic characteristics of Japanese Americans. And rather, what they said, and I, again, I can't go into this, it's too long, but there's certain kind of uh, uh, historical facts. They sent their kids, kids to Japanese school. They sent their kids to Japan for an education. Um, and such like that, that uh, used to frame what they call the ethnic characteristics argument. That because of their peculiar ethnic characteristics of Japanese Americans, it was impossible to tell the loyal from the disloyal. Uh, also, General DeWitt did argue that Japanese were, and Japanese Americans were implicated in espionage on the West Coast. But without any inquiry, without any challenge to these evidence by the courts, without an examination, the court accepted, deferred to the president, abdicated the role as an independent examiner, and upheld the, uh, the conviction of both Minyasui and Gordon Hirabayashi. It was an exercise in massive racial profiling. And the decisions, if you read them closely, are very, very weak uh, because they had no evidence. So what they had to say in a, in a, in a statement that make uh, uh, English teachers cringe using the dreaded double, double negative. We cannot reject as unfounded the judgment of the military authorities that there were disloyal members of that population whose number and strength could not be precisely ascertained. We don't know how many they are, we don't know how strong they are, but I guess they're dangerous. The also, court also said we cannot say that the war branches did not have ground for believing in a critical hour that such persons could not be isolated and separately de dealt with. It's like coming home on Valentine's Day and telling your, your spouse or significant other, honey, I cannot say I do not love you. You don't get, 
You don't get very far with that, but the court was so uh, challenged by making these decisions, it had to find some way to say it, uh, but it came across as, as, like I said, very, very weak. The next case that came up after Hirabayashi was convicted was Minyasui, the next page over on the Supreme Court reporters. And the decision could have just said ditto, because what it did say was, for the same reasons that we uh, upheld the conviction of Gordon Hirabayashi, we uphold the conviction of Minoru Yasui. One and a half years transpire, go by, and Fred Korematsu's case is brought up to the United States Supreme Court. In December of 1944, the court reaches a decision. It is gallingly hypocritical, because the court begins with these magnificent, magniloquent declarations of people's rights. All legal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect. Only the gravest imminent danger to public safety can justify such great deprivations. And it's as if all these beautiful phrases could hide the enormity of the travesty and the injustice they are about to declare. They essentially parrot the Hirabayashi uh, racial characteristic arguments. Uh, they use the dreaded double negative again. And they uphold the exclusion order and say that the detention issue could be dealt with separately later on. There are three vehement dissents. This is not a 9-0 decision. It's a 6-3 decision. Justice Murphy says, such exclusion goes over the very brink of constitutional power and falls into the ugly abyss of racism. I dissent, therefore, from this legalization of racism. Justice Jackson, in an often quoted uh, statement, says, the court for all time has validated the principle of racial discrimination. The principle then lies around like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority who could put forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. The loaded weapon, just remember that because it's being reloaded today. Korematsu then became one of two modern cases that upheld a racial classification, a, a, an adverse one, and the other one was, of course, Gordon Hirabayashi. Over the years, these cases have been seriously criticized by uh, by jurisprudence experts, by commentators, by historians. Uh, in fact, six months after the decision of Korematsu, uh, the dean of the Yale Law School wrote a scathing review of the decision, uh, calling it a civil rights disaster. 30 years pass. Japanese Americans return to their home, try to rebuild their lives. They're trying to also forget the shame and humility of having to live in, in, as American citizens with the stamp of uh, imprimatur of being spies and saboteurs. But the fire of the civil rights movement ignites the imagination of America and fans the flames of imagination for Asian Americans and Japanese Americans as well. The redress movement is born, forged out of that fire. It's a movement led by Japanese Americans, but in, eventually including people of all color in this country. Uh, to gain, uh, extract an apology from the U.S. government and reparations of 20,000 per, per Japanese American incarcerated. At the same time, the Regis movement begins, two researchers in the archives find startling evidence of government misconduct in the Korematsu, Hirabayashi, and Yasui cases. They include uh, evidence that he contradicted the government's position in those cases, the position that the government announced 
in Hirabayashi, Korematsu, and Yasui were absolutely refuted by evidence that they had in their own hands and documents. One included the reports on loyalty of Japanese Americans. It was the definitive report by the Office of Naval Intelligence who concluded that Japanese Americans were not a danger, that they could be handled by individual loyalty hearings, and recommended against mass incarceration. Surprisingly, uh, the FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, no friend of civil rights, uh, also concurred with that opinion uh, for different reasons. He said, essentially, you know, look, I got a file on everybody in this country. You know, I know who's dangerous. I'll just pick up the couple thousand that I know are dangerous, and you don't have to send them all to incarceration camps. There are also reports on espionage and sabotage. This is what DeWitt claimed in the Supreme Court, that Japanese Americans were engaged in signaling to offshore Jap uh, Japanese ships from Japan uh, and giving them information. Uh, the FBI and the Federal Communications Commission investigated every single allegation that General DeWitt had logged, found them each one to be false, that there was no such shit signaling. And in fact, DeWitt was so incompetent, his men were so incompetent, they were fastening, listening to radio signals from Radio Tokyo. They were listening to Japanese, but none of them could speak Japanese, so they assumed they were came in, coming from Japanese Americans, which was absolutely untrue. Finally, the report that General DeWitt got admitted into the Supreme Court um, was changed and altered 180 degrees. The original report, uh, the, they called it the final report, but there's an original report that said that, you know, it's not a matter of time. It's just a matter that you can't distinguish loyal from disloyal among Japanese. Clearly a racist argument. Uh, that was changed completely to say that there was an insufficient time. Uh, so it's 180 degrees. No ready means existed to separate the loyal from the disloyal. All the evidence contradicting the government's position were suppressed. I think the most stunning documents were the admissions by the Department of Justice lawyers that the government uh, misconduct uh, was evident in these cases. That De DeWitt's overt acts of treason, for example, as stated by one of the government lawyers. Since this is not so, it is highly unfair to this racial minority that these lies put out in an official publication go uncorrected. This department has an ethical obligation to the court to refrain from citing the final report, and yet they continue to do so. Regarding the Ringel report, the, the, the ethical lawyers in the Department of Justice say, we should consider very carefully whether we do not have a duty to advise the court of the existence of the Ringel report. It occurs to me that any other course of conduct might approximate the suppression of evidence. And the Solicitor General, who argues in the Supreme Court, despite these memos, despite the knowledge that these are outright lies, continues to suppress and tell these lies to the Supreme Court. So in 1982, I get a call from one of the researchers, Peter Irons, and he tells me he's found this evidence that a fraud was committed on the Supreme Court perhaps the first time in American jurisprudence that this allegation was made. We'd all read those cases. We all thought they were travesties, or many of us did. You know, and I knew from personal experience my parents were not spies or saboteurs. So we brought the cases, and thank you for the explanation, Barbara, Coram Nobis. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of getting into court to uh, redress a, a, a wrong. But it was a massive undertaking. We're retrying history. 
but we had the opportunity to impact some of the worst cases ever penned by the United States Supreme Court. We got a chance to correct the historical record because many people still felt that Japanese Americans deserved to be incarcerated or the government had some reasons and we got a chance to overturn the convictions of three courageous men. Our cases were brought in the middle of the, that redress movement to extract that apology and $20,000 uh, from the government. It was an inspired journey toward political redemption and psychological redemption as well. So we created a work team, and we had to form teams in three areas, Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco, the areas where these three men were convicted. And we got to meet Fred Korematsu, and that meeting was fraught with tension because in law school, you know, you read these cases and you never put the human drama behind the case name itself. They're abstract, uh, fighting about abstract principles. So, I mean, who knows who Linda Brown was? And, and it was like, for us, meeting Padonia versus Neff. Uh, that's an in-joke for law students because <laughs> nobody else knows who that is. Uh, and we filed in three different courts. We had a strategy knowing that uh, if we got a bad judge in San Francisco, which was our first choice of venue because we had uh, the best panel there, we would file the next day in Seattle, where the second best panel was. And we'd try to stall or delay in San Francisco and let the Seattle case go through. Got a good judge in San Francisco, we'd delay the filing everywhere else until we got a head start and try to consolidate everything in San Francisco. And if we got a bad judge in Seattle, we just prayed because Portland did had a terrible panel at that time. Well, as luck would have it, and lawyers don't talk about luck unless you lose a case, and that's bad luck, uh, we got Judge Marilyn Hall Patel, our first choice, a brilliant, brilliant former, league, uh, former counsel, general counsel for the National Organization of Women, a judge that we knew from Oakland, California, tough, smart, courageous, uh, and we knew we'd get a fair shake. Um, as we progressed in our cases, uh, the government offered Fred a pardon and said, uh, to Fred, you know, we'll uh, obviate any punishment, but you're still guilty. Fred re rejected the pardon. Uh, so the next week they came back and said, we'll offer you a pardon for innocence. And we took that to Fred. And we, well, first I asked the uh, attorney, what, what is that? We've never heard of that. We researched this. He goes, oh, we just made it up. <laughs> they, wanted, they wanted this case to go away. And Fred said, we, we should not, we're not accepting a pardon. If anything, we should pardon the government. So with that, we headed toward trial. In the middle of that uh, effort, the commission that was studying the redress uh, demands by Japanese Americans issued a report, uh, and it's a definitive report after an investigation. The broad historical causes that shaped the exclusion and detention were race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. So armed with that finding, a government official report, we had our day in court on November 19, 1983. It was the trial that Japanese Americans never had. And I opened with an argument saying, we are here today to seek a measure of justice denied to Fred Korematsu and the Japanese American community some 40 years ago. The opposing counsel spoke. Fred gave an impassioned plea, saying, I'm bringing this case not just for myself, but so that this will never happen to another American again. The court, in, unusual, uh, in an unusual move, issued the ruling right from the bench. And she said there was no military necessity to imprison Japanese Americans 
the government deliberately omitted relevant evidence and provided misleading information in papers before the court. The facts for the military justification were unsubstantiated facts, distortions, and the representations of at least one military commander whose views were seriously infected with racism. With those words, she overturned Fred Cormatz's 40-year-old conviction. In a later decision, she wrote both eloquently and prophetically, Korematsu stands as a caution that in times of distress, the shield of military necessity and national security must not be used to protect uh, government actions from close scrutiny and accountability. It stands as a caution that in times of international hostility and antagonisms, our institutions, legislative, executive, and judicial, must be prepared to exercise their authority to protect the, uh, all the citizens from the petty fears and prejudices that are so easily aroused. She found that the uh, conviction of Fred Korematsu is fundamentally unfair. Gordon Hirabayashi had a full-blown trial, got his convictions overturned in the Ninth Circuit, the appellate courts, and Yasui's convictions were overturned by the Portland judge without any further uh, uh, hearings. A number of events afterwards, which I don't have time to go into, validated the commission's hearings. A recantation by uh, acting solicitor general, Neil Katyal, who confessed error in having done these cases and confessed that they were committing misconduct. The various presidents have awarded uh, Fred and Gordon and Min the Presidential Medal of Freedom for their brave act in opposing what now is, looks at a, is a terrible stain on our history. They are, as I said, some of the most criticized uh, cases in court history. And they don't come up very much because they're toxic in the sense that uh, they are so obviously wrong and uh, undergirded by a foundation of fraud. But there's a political precedent that still remains. The idea that you could uh, racially profile an entire group of people by uh, stereotypes and you could take away their rights or prevent them from gaining rights. Um, so that, I guess, call it the echoes of history, is heard today. And we hear that in 2017. And we've heard it when the Persian War occurred, after September 11th, the idea of imprisoning all Muslim Americans or all Arab Americans. Uh, but it was not accompanied by a specific executive order that Donald Trump has uh, issued to bar immigration from certain Muslim-majority countries, assigning group characteristics that they're terrorists. And this is not individual guilt, which is central to our criminal justice system. Um, and yet, as, as the stereotypes of being terrorists uh, were the same as the stereotypes of Japanese-Americans being dangerous. And just as were no Japanese-Americans ever convicted of espionage or sabotage, uh, no terrorist has ever been convicted from these Muslim countries of a deadly attack on American soil. The second part uh, of these cases that are parallel to uh, the Japanese-American cases uh, is the, the government refuses to produce the evidence, the report upon which the decision to bar Muslim-majority countries, immigrants, is based on. They completed a report, a study, they refused to give it to the courts. They claim presidential deliberative privilege. It is not no different than the suppression of evidence that we saw against the Japanese Americans in World War II. But perhaps the most disturbing aspect of this entire 
travel ban cases is the president's demanding complete deference from the courts. You don't have the right to review my decision. Just like the courts in Korematsu did not review the, court, the government's uh, assertions or decisions, President Trump and the lawyers are saying, the, this is beyond your power. And so it leaves us without a court. A long shadow is the danger to democracy, the danger to the checks and balances system, the danger that we will not have that type of um, moderating influence or the ability of courts to assess independently whether a decision is uh, correct or not. Lawsuits have challenged the president. In the fourth district, ninth district has upheld the president, uh, excuse me, has up upheld, excuse me, have rejected the president's bans. The Supreme Court had allowed some of the bans uh, to go through and uh, be, be overturned, but on a temporary basis. And is now in the Supreme Court. On April 26th, the arguments were held in, in the Supreme Court. We expect a decision by June. And even though the president will rebuff by two circuit court of appeals, we fear the worst is that we're going to have a repeat of history and that the Supreme Court will not stand up to this president and that we will again have a, have a, have a terrible, terrible, perhaps, uh, decision that will impact our civil rights. We started a campaign and we enlisted uh, called Stop Repeating History. You can find that, just type that in. But we, we enlisted uh, the children of Fred Korematsu, Gordon Hirabayashi, and Min Yasui to file an amicus brief and do an educational campaign because the stakes were more than just a travel ban. The stakes were the repeating of history which led to a civil rights disaster for Japanese Americans and now leads to a breakdown of our democratic system in worst case scenario. And we tried to connect the dots between the Japanese American experience and the Muslim experience. And the danger is if this bans go through, it just invites abuse if the courts don't do their role and, and uh, take on the responsibility. There are many lessons and that we cannot rely on our constitutions. I mean, excuse me, we cannot rely on our institutions to protect our rights. There's more that we have to do beyond this. We have to understand that dissent is not the enemy of patriotism, that Fred Gordon and Min challenged the government's orders. They were vilified, they were ostracized. They were branded as troublemakers, as traitors, and today they are thought of as heroes. It's our political birthright to dissent. It's our duty as Americans. It's our historical leg legacy. We should remember the strength of political power because in 1942, Japanese Americans were virtually alone and we suffered that ter terrible uh, incarceration experience. And in 1988, the 30th anniversary is happening in August when the President Reagan signed the redress bill for Japanese Americans uh, Japanese Americans stood with a rainbow coalition of Americans of all colors to, it, to get a monumental bill passed by Congress. We know that civil rights are not self-executing. They are, they are not gifts, they are challenges. And for us, through the lens of history, with the moral authority we have from what has happened in our, throughout our history, including the Chinese Immigration Acts, which are the basis of these travel bans today, including the Japanese-American experience, we can now speak with the moral authority that we will stand up with our Muslim and Arab brothers and sisters. We will try to stop repeating history, and we'll never let this happen again.
So thank you very much. I went a little over. No, that's all right. You're good. good. You're good. We got plenty of time. Thank you very much. We, uh, I'm Dan Malthrop, CEO of the City Club, and today we're enjoying a forum with Dale Manami, partner at Manami Tamaki. We're about to begin the audience Q&A, and we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or our webcast. If you'd like to tweet a question, whether you're watching on the web or in the room, tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Roz Midorsky. May we have our first question, please? Uh, welcome to Cleveland, Dale. Uh, I recall when I was studying Asian American history in college, uh, in the 1940s, the Japanese American community was very prominent in the agricultural uh, industry. And there were some uh, people who felt that one of the uh, motivations for the uh, uh, detention of the Japanese Americans was economic and to uh, try to diminish the role of Japanese Americans in that industry. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think I would. I, you know, you can't quantify that claim, but it's coming out more and more even today. They're talking about how the Japanese Americans as immigrants first came here as farm laborers. They eventually begin to own farms. They begin to reclaim land that uh, was, was fellow for years and years and became a powerful economic force in the state. And various groups organized uh, with a deliberate purpose and stated purpose to get Japanese American land. Uh, and they influenced the politicians who pretty much went on board with this program and uh, led essentially the California delegation, the governor, the mayor of Los Angeles, all of them uh, called for the exclusion of Japanese Americans. So there's quite a bit of evidence uh, to that effect. And while that, I think, is not the only reason, I think it's a contributing cause. Dale, in, the, in Barbara's intro, um, she mentioned your work, your political work, with the, the Political Action Committee supporting Asian American candidates. And I wonder if you could talk about how successful that work has been what, um, and what political power has meant to your Asian American community in San Francisco, but also Asian American communities across the country. Yeah, I, I think, you know, my experience growing up uh, was that Asian Americans were disempowered. And part of it was the, the, the remnants of the camp, uh, the exclusion experience. They were afraid to get involved uh, civically. Um, but uh, as time went on, people and demographics changed. That once you get critical mass, you got enough people, you got enough money to be able to influence policy. I think I've always felt that we needed to have a seat at the table to be equal uh, or gain equal dignity from this country. I think you've got to have political power or and or economic power or both. So, so far, I mean, the results have been mixed in the sense from our group, to be honest. We, we were able to have quite an impact earlier on, uh, but eventually what happened is that the demographics shifted enough that so many other groups were able to uh, uh, engage Asian American voters, uh, get Asian American money, and uh, make have an impact on, on especially there are certain swing states around the, uh, around the country where Asian American voters play a huge role. Virginia is one of them, for example. Nevada is another. And those are the ones we kind of focus on. Hi there, Dale. Uh, 
Every time I hear about Cormansu, I get a little upset. So you know, thank you for sharing that with this group. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering, you know, practically speaking, are there ways that you would suggest those of us here in Cleveland or uh, who are listening, uh, ways that we could help oppose the travel ban if we would like to do that? Are there practical things that we could do or the, to join in this effort? I, I think it's gonna be a long-term project because now that it's in the hands of the Supreme Court, you know, the legal part of it um, is almost a fait accompli at some point. I, I think the continuing education of people uh, about what these type of bans, the type of uh, orders that are made that discriminate or single out a racial group or ethnic group or religious group, uh, that education has to continue on. And uh, if you go to the website, Stop Repeating History, there's a number of specific actions we suggest. The first one really has to come from yourself. You've got to have the courage to stand up and speak out. Because the more voices that turn into a chorus, the more power we have, the more we're heard. And secondly, I think we've got to have, I know this is nonpartisan, but I'm not. But <laughs> we have to change the elections in 2018. So we have to play a role in those. And I'm not saying Republican or Democrat. We've got to choose people who will, who will uh, look to the light and not the darkness. And that's where the political part of it comes in. That's where it dovetails with Dan's question, too, that we have to empower ourselves to help this country move forward. We could no longer afford to be silent or stand down like in 1942. Only the Quakers of all the, all the uh, groups uh, supported Japanese Americans. The ACLU was absent until later. They came in until later. You know, a number of other liberal groups, the, the communists, the socialists, they, they didn't support Japanese Americans at all. So I think now, if you're, now is the time not to be silent. And I think you have to stand up and be an activist. The next question is from Twitter. Uh, while perhaps not racist, is the government's taking of property without charges or trials equally wrong? Is that a question? <laughs> Dan's, Dan's got a question mark at the end. That was a good one. Um, I agree. Chris Megatak from Han Lozier. I appreciate you coming here today. It was uh, great listening to, to you speak. I just, as I was sitting here, um, I started thinking sort of what was the take on FDR for passing the executive order? Has there been any sort of general consensus on, on what folks thought of, of him, you know, as, as him being racist? And I apologize, I, I, I haven't, you know, investigated the issue or anything, but curious when you talk about you know, the current president and, and sort of his thoughts on what he's trying with the travel ban and things like that. And there's a lot of folks out there saying certain things about him. So I wonder, I guess, going back, what, what was the thought maybe then or even now since we've had history, you know, right. come, come to the current time? You know, what's the thought on FDR? It's a good question because, uh, you know, my, my dad uh, was, became a Republican because of FDR. A lot of Japanese Americans became Republicans, seriously, un until, uh, you know, other events transpired that changed their minds. Um, but FDR, who was a great man, I mean, he did things that were, he saved our country from the Depression, from many other things. He created great programs. So it's a mixed uh, bag for Japanese Americans, especially. If you read a book called By Order of the President, it sheds some insight into him, and I don't think it's definitive, but he was actually uh, subscribed to a lot of eugenics and white supremacy theories. He both hated Japanese and he 
uh, also admired them for what they did. A very complex man when it came to the Japanese, Japanese race. So, and I don't think that was, uh, it, it allowed him, of course, uh, to, in a sense, dehumanize the victims uh, and easier to, 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 to write this order, although other people in the uh, government uh, bureaucracy or government, uh, governmental area uh, had recommended it. So I think uh, from where I stand, it's mixed. I mean, I think it was, it, was, it affected us personally, affected our constitution, uh, it affected our, our, it was just a blot on, on American history. And yet the other, the good FDR was really a great man. So uh, that's my personal perspective. I know my, my father were living, he'd probably have a different perspective. Um, but that's how I think. Thank you. Hi, Tessa Schwan. Thank you for your remarks. I'm wondering um, what the Quakers did to support the Japanese Americans. And for those of us who are not lawyers, you know, what can we do and what could groups have done um, back in World War II to influence the Supreme Court decision and the suppression of evidence? The last question first, the Supreme Court, influence of the Supreme Court is difficult. That's why we filed the amicus brief. We wanted to remind the Supreme Court that the origins of the travel ban come from the Chinese Exclusion Act. The cases that were cited by the government came from the Chinese Exclusion Act litigation. We want to remind the government that, uh, the, or it's the Supreme Court, that they made a huge mistake, a huge failure during World War II. And we do not want to see that happen again. Uh, so we've had petitions signed, you know, asking the Supreme Court to stop repeating history. Um, but it's, you know, it's very difficult uh, to influence the Supreme Court. Uh, I think the social media is important, though, because the more we use social media, I think the more it expands our voices and magnifies them to the degree that uh, we get out there in, in the general public. So um, that's the short answer. I have other answers um, which I can go into longer. But as far as the Quakers, they were the only national organization to oppose the incarceration. And individual Quakers, the, the, just some Japanese Americans were allowed to move inland um, into the United States, into other parts of the United States, although no state would take them. And they said, you're not welcome here, you're not coming in. There was only one governor, Ralph Carr in Colorado, allowed Japanese to come in. And he, 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 next, he lost his next election. So he was never the governor again. He was a very courageous man. So a lot of Japanese were able to go to Colorado and the Quaker families would house them and would say, we're, you're welcome here. So individually, the Quakers were supportive as well as just as an organization. Uh, thank you for an ex excellent talk. I'm wondering with this travel ban and issues like that, are other democracies doing better than we are? In, in, 19, in uh, 2018? I mean, Canada, Australia, Great Britain, are they doing any better? Or, or are we, uh, we're not doing a good job, I don't think. You know, it's hard to say, I don't know that for sure. I know uh, if you look at what's happening in France, what's happening in Germany, what's and there's certainly backlash in France, uh, what's happening in, in Great Britain, you know, in Canada especially, they have allowed, uh, I don't know of any specific bans, although there's been issues related to that raised to these governments. So, um, but, but I don't think they've done it on the same level. I don't think it's done officially. I don't think it's done for uh, specifically 
all Muslim countries. Which is interesting about that to me is that the, most of the attackers of September 11th came from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is not on the banned list. Why is that? Well, we know the president has great interest, economic interest in Saudi Arabia. But if you're talking about terrorists, you know, you need to put Saudi Arabia on that list. That's not being done. So I haven't seen those official bans in other countries. I know there's uh, controversies within those countries. Germany has done such a great job at one level, but there's a backlash now against the Merkel government. And there's certainly uh, Macron in France is having a backlash that he's now you know, playing to a little bit. So you know, we may see it. So I can, I, can, I can say they probably have done better because they haven't done these official bans, but uh, it remains to be seen, I think. The president has been able to do this, and they're using uh, Carter and the Iranians as an example or something like that. Uh, he ha he's cited precedent, and I think uh, their biggest, the government's biggest argument is the president has, quote, plenary power over immigration. Um, and that means that you can't interfere with whatever he decides. And yet the laws say you can't discriminate on the basis of religion or national origin. And that, so the laws are conflicting with what the president is saying. And the plenary power doctrine that the president is relying on, again, emanates from the original Chinese Exclusion Act. And the basis of that act is, as Barbara said earlier, it's about the other. They're foreign. They're unassimilable. That's what they said about the Chinese. And that's what those bases of those laws were that the president is now relying on, although he's not using the words unassimilable uh, exactly. But it's implied. At least one of the justices who was in the majority of Korematsu later uh, in, I believe, his autobiography and elsewhere, uh, acknowledged that this was uh, wartime hysteria and, and an era, error. Um, have you been able to use his statements or any of the other justices uh, in developing your arguments? We, I don't remember using his statement. I know that a number of politicians and judges who were involved in the decisions recanted later on. Tom Clark, who was one of the attorney generals, um, uh, I think William O. Douglas, Earl Warren, uh, just before he died, re said it was the worst mistake he ever made. Um, and so we, we've had that a lot of, quote, apologies, and they're real apologies, uh, coupled with Neil Katyal, the uh, acting solicitor general's confession of error. Uh, our case was before that, so a lot of, a lot of folks did not recant until later. But it is interesting that uh, a number of people have said, yeah, we're wrong. And, and I, you have to take that as face value. You've got to accept that. And you have to understand, yes, it was a, a time of hysteria and crisis. But we can't let that alone dictate how we protect our marginalized citizens. Because we're going to have a crisis, as we were told by President Bush, the war on terror is a permanent war. So if you've got a permanent war, then you've got a permanent a compromise of civil rights. And I just can't buy that. So I think we need to have more balance and more transparency. Um, thank you for speaking today. This is sort of going off your previous answer. What is the modern equivalent of the war hysteria that FDR used to justify internment? And in what ways can we 
hold politicians accountable for not using that as a default or educate the public? Oh, I th thank you for your talk. Uh, the, the modern equivalent is really, in my mind, is uh, the other, the terrorism committed by all Muslims and all Arab Americans. And that fear of the other, which is a theme that runs through American history, uh, is something that you know we need to do through what you folks have talked about in terms of having open debate, explaining that. I think one of the best ways is uh, you know to, to make connections between marginalized groups like like we're doing today, Muslims and Japanese and Asian Americans, understanding that. Uh, the situations we're in have been repeated in history, and we need to learn from that. That strange thing about history is that people, you know, say if you don't uh, learn from history, you're deemed to, doomed to repeat it. I have a little, I know that's a cliche, but people do know history, but because of political expediency, they will choose to ignore it. We know the Vietnam War was a quagmire that pulled us down, and now we're in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and we're not winning. Uh, Iraq is doing better, but Afghanistan is still a problem. Um, so I think the process of education, and, and it means calling upon your politicians, it means organizing at a local level, it means organizing your friends, your family, and folks to have your voices heard, to put it, put it out there, either on social media or through friends and family, or even strangers, uh, to organize Ally yourselves with other, other people who think alike. Uh, put political pressure on the uh, powers that be. It could be local Congress people. It could be anyone who has a, a say-so. And I think uh, have forums about talking about these issues and explaining and understanding. Like what the City Club is doing is, is marvelous, to be able to bring in speakers to actually get to talk to people and explain some little part of history that uh, illuminates it's a larger problem that we may be facing in democracy. So I really believe education and political pressure, those things are, go hand in hand. Hi, Dale. I don't know if you uh, remember, I know you, you remember me, but we met yeah. uh, almost 30 years ago when you came oh, with Gordon Hirabayashi to talk about this. At, I at, was 15 then. I, yeah. I don't know <laughs> Um, my question, you kind of referred to this. Um, I teach about these cases. I actually even teach the Coram Nobis cases at the University of Akron uh, School of Law. Um, but there have been uh, several references by public figures in recent years um, referring to Korematsu not in the, in the way that we understood it when we learned about it in law school as disgraced and discredited decisions, but with approval. And I wonder if you would say something about what, what your thoughts when you hear those things. Yeah, this is the long shadow of Korematsu. You know, we thought it was dead and toxic and nobody was going to use it. And even the Supreme Court refused to cite it, except in a really unusual way. So we didn't see it cited much until uh, recently. We saw, you know, Civil Rights Commissioner Kersenow endorse the idea of the incarceration. Carl Higby, Trump's spokesperson, endorsed the idea of a mass incarceration of Muslims. President Trump himself has uh, said the same thing. So it's come back as Korematsu, not so much the case, uh, but as a precedent. That because we did it before, we could do it again. Which means, of course, we could take Native American lands, we could you know, enact slavery laws. It makes no sense at all, but it's some hook 
to hang on to justify uh, what's going to be another terrible injustice. So while it's not cited, uh, uh, while it's cited as a historical, it's starting to creep back in a little bit in the dialogue of uh, civil rights. And that's the scary part. And that's why we have to keep learning and understanding how those decisions were made and how they were based on official governmental misconduct uh, and how they're discredited. So we can have that dialogue with people who say, well, Korematsu validated the incarceration. And we could say, no, it didn't, uh, because here's why. So that's why these forums are important again, too. Today at the City Club, we're enjoying a forum with Mr. Dale Minami, partner at Minami Tamaki. Our forum today is the Cleveland Association of Phi Beta Kappa Endowed Forum, endowed by the members of the Cleveland Association of Phi Beta Kappa. Several of them are here with us today. We thank you very much for your support of City Club programming. Our community partners for our program today are the Asian American Bar Association of Ohio and the Cleveland Association of Phi Beta Kappa. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate the partnership of all of your organizations. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Baker Hostetler, Han Lozier, Littler Mendelssohn, Mar Littler Mendelssohn, Margaret W., Margaret Wong and Associates, Thompson Hine, and Tucker Ellis. And lastly, we welcome the student winners of the Hope and Stanley Edelstein Free Speech Essay Contest. Student participation in City Club Forums is provided by many foundations, including the William M. Weiss Foundation. And we thank all of you for being with us today. That brings us to the end of our program. Thank you, Mr. Minami. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.